everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons, a philosophy podcast about big topics in bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. Knowledge is power. We've all heard the saying, but few of us have stopped to actually consider the implication. Paired with a consciousness that allows for forethought, knowledge is what allows humankind to prosper. That prosperity has created a vast, rich, and unique legacy with equally vast, deep, and unique problems. Today we'll look at what knowledge is, if it's possible, how humans use it for better or worse, and if knowledge can help the human species cheat extinction. All right, so we've got a couple things to talk about today, and we were talking about it right before we started recording, which is that we've gotten to the point now where we've put together enough episodes that we can reference back stuff and talk about um, some things and connect them, which is what philosophy and critical thinking are about, is you know, reflecting on things you already know and your prior knowledge and, and um, creating new knowledge out of it. Yeah. So we'll probably reflect a lot on the episode that we just did on self and um, you know, as well as epistemology and onto- ontology, you know, it's stuff that you have to talk about when you're talking about knowledge. So if you uh, are just listening to this podcast, you might, you know, we might reference back to some of the other ones a little bit, especially we were, I was talking about how um, we, we mentioned the ship of Theseus last week and how, how do you know if yourself is one self that you're adding and subtracting from throughout time or if you're different selves as you as you go along and then during the week that thought came back up to me and i realized you know that's not just a psychological you know sort of thing it's also a physical kind of thing you know because there's a study that came out about a year ago that said that by weight humans are more bacteria or other living things than they are the single organism so in that sort of way, it's almost you have different different things that make up what you are, and you have a sort of a, a symbiotic and synergistic relationship where one can't survive without the other, and it makes you wonder, well, are those tiny organisms part of me, or are they own their own distinct thing, or how does it all work out, you know? So, and this these are all problems of knowledge. How do we know what things are? And we've referenced a lot of times throughout the podcast um, categorization. That's the big, that's the key term with human knowledge is categorization. Can we put it into a box that adequately describes the concept we're trying to construct? And what we're finding out is that we almost never can. <laughs> <laughs> that's right there's always there's always almost always exceptions or um you know things that just don't work and then it's the job of philosophy to try to corral them back in or you know come up with a, a new concept yeah. so let's start by trying to put knowledge in its own box so um you know the purpose of knowledge is putting things in boxes now let's try to put it in its own box so Let's talk about defining what knowledge is in terms of knowing something versus believing something versus speculating. So inside, we talked about last weekend, I versus me, the self that reflects versus the self that is reflected upon. So in terms of that system, believing and knowing are essentially the same thing. If I believe something, to me that is knowledge. 
but to the objective outside world, it may not be. That's right. So how philosophers sort of frame that argument? Well, we'll start with Edmund Gettier, uh, a 21st century, or not 20th century, sorry, philosopher. He says that having a belief that is true, supported by evidence, is not necessarily having knowledge. Um, so he uses the example of a clock. You'll like this. Right? So you set a clock, you wake up, you see the time. Let's say it's 6 a.m. And, and it is right. Unless exactly 12 hours earlier, the battery stopped and that clock was at 6 uh, but it wasn't 6 a.m., it was 6 p.m. You believe that it's 6, you see that it's on 6, and you wake up and the sun is shining, but if you, if uh, it's, what the clock says is not necessarily what is. And, and so he, he uses this mechanistic example uh, to say that whether the spring is broken or something else, it's just because we believe that doesn't make it knowledge. Knowledge is that which is measurable. Oh, well, okay, so I believe that between where you live and the highway is X number of yards. I estimate. That doesn't mean my estimate is accurate. But if somebody says, oh, okay, because they don't measure even as well as I do, which is not well, then, <laughs> then they've accepted a belief because as a whatever the authority is, whether age or whatever, that the, the, somehow they think they've ceded authority to me as one example of, and, and, and on goes the potential inaccuracy. Right. And I think that that's, that's a big problem with knowledge that we have um, in the current day and ages. Like you're saying, the definition between a knowledge and belief is finding some sort of empirical measurement system to compare the two and then coming to a, um, in agreement but and you know i think the problem in ancient times was finding a measurement system that everybody agrees on all right this is going to be a foot or a kilogram or whatever it is or this a is stone the british right. just, british folks just, or the, the most ancient you know the most ancient examples and i think it was the han dynasty china where they decided how wide the wagon wheel tracks would be throughout the country so that everybody could ride in the roads but i think nowadays that's established so a lot of people will see information and without really questioning what the measurement system is just kind of accept that because like you were saying an authority somebody who has a certain age or a certain title or a certain thing all right they're an authority on this so i'm going to take what they're saying as as truth and we, and, we, and we necessarily need to do that. We're, we're in a culture right now that is devaluing authority. And, and I'm not talking about political authority. That's an entirely different topic. But, but just the idea that we, we, we are, uh, this is a soapbox thing, but we're sort of a bipolar society in the sense that we say we value education, but we don't want people to be elitist. We say we value education. We don't want to accept that people, some people know more than others about certain things because if they know more than others and they tell you that they know more, then you, then they start losing social uh, credit to be uh, isolated. And so we want knowledge, but we don't want it. 
right. And then we have the illusion of explanatory depth, IOED. Right? So we we have, th and this is about hard knowledge. So uh, hard knowledge in philosophy is considered knowledge that is uh, divorced from values, divorced from personal backgrounds. It just tangibly is. And we we say we have knowledge of a refrigerator, and and so, what well, do you know how a refrigerator works? Well, sure, I plug it into the wall and it keeps things cold. No, that's not what I asked. Can you tell me how a refrigerator functions? Lots of people, including myself, when pressed to it, would say, "Oh, not so much." I know that there's intense cold created, and the heat the heat has to be given off in order for the cold and. And, you, and if you have the humility to say, well, I guess I just stepped in it, didn't I? I really don't know as much as I thought I did about a refrigerator. So we think we have knowledge. When we're honest about the knowledge, we if we can be honest about the knowledge that we don't have, that makes us more ready to go out and, and get it philosophically. Yeah, so there's, there's kind of two distinct problems that are almost um, diametrically opposed to each other, which is where you'll have, on the one hand, people who will accept an authority without questioning where the information's coming from. And I think that problem is concerned with sort of seeing some of these people not as humans. Like, you know, you had cold fusion back in the day where these guys were legitimate scientists. They were legitimate people, but they're still people. And as people, they wanted to make the next discovery. They wanted to do the next thing. And they, as a result, they were willing to fudge a little bit of their numbers and they got off track. So scientists are people, academics are people, just like everybody else, um, with the same desires, the same sort of um, things they struggle with. Absolutely. And that's so, why you have to have the checks and balances right. built into that. But So they can't be accepted blindly, and that's why peer review and those sorts of things exist, but also why people need to look at sources and things for themselves. But the same end, you know, at, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the people you just described where because the technology and knowledge has become so advanced and so specialized there's people where they reach a point where if i can't understand this then it's magic and it's not i'm not you know i'm not inclined to believe something you know and climate change is a big one um where you know people will say that you know Oh, well, you know, look at it, it's eight degrees outside right now. So much for climate change. Right, but what they don't, right. you know, what the, you don't understand is that climate change affects the jet stream. And so that's why, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago, it would be 30, 35 degrees all winter. Whereas now you get 60 degree days, you'll get negative five degree days. And that's because the jet stream is going up and down. The and polar vortex shifts. There yes, was a whole discussion about that recently. So. And so this is a system that's so complex, not even the people who are studying it understand exactly what's going on like your human being us as a corporate entity made of all kinds of organisms <laughs> and they, right we don't understand us <laughs> so it's not surprising we don't understand yeah yeah so knowledge is changing and adapting every day and i think that's something that should be exciting and should make people want to learn but instead people want to skip the learning step and just immediately jump to the having an opinion or having a belief step yes. And uh, so th that kind of frames the the societal problem of knowledge, which it wasn't really where I planned on going with that, but I think that it's good for the, the conversation. So that sort of brings us up to um, Moore's paradox, which kind of en encapsulates the problem a little bit. 
And um, part of what that says is that, you know, if you have a a first person present tense sentence, you know, like it's raining, but I don't believe that it's raining or it's raining, but I believe that it's not raining. Um, one thing that more noted is that those sentences seem absurd, but in actuality, they can be true. They're logically consistent and cohesive, and they're not obviously true contradictions. And that kind of talks about what we were just mentioning, which is that knowledge and belief um, are separate things that and people need to understand the difference between the two. You know, you can't just because you believe something doesn't make it truth. So let's talk about types of knowledge. So situated knowledge versus the ability to generalize. And that's kind of a that's a pretty important human concept. And it's something that in education is really struggled with. You learn something in the classroom. Now, how do you have a student that takes what they learned in that classroom in that very specific, very, um, you know, situated instance? And how do they bring that to regular everyday life? So what what's the what's the background behind that? How do how do we learn things and then apply it? Okay. So I'm going to use slightly different terms, but I like your use of the situated and so on. So in uh, philosophical terms, there's foundationalism and there's non-foundationalism. And foundationalism says knowledge rests on a foundation of basic beliefs, beliefs that, that we know to be true without inferring. Okay, so the situational. <clears throat> I feel a pain. I see something blue. I exist. Two plus three equals five. So we know to be true without inferring these things for, for various reasons. My body tells me I hurt, I hurt. Well, except we talked about this in a podcast earlier, except for the ghost pain when you don't have a limb and then you feel, but you're still feeling right. a pain. Yeah, and that kind of muddies everything up is when you, you start to talk, to talk about skepticism or, um, you know, you start to conduct some of these experiments, sort of testing the ghost in the machine a little bit, you know. It is. And the, and the non-foundational even gets more complicated, complicated because it's a web of interconnected beliefs which reinforce each other. The non-foundationalists say there's uh, things are coherent if the beliefs all adhere, if they, they hold together. Uh, if they cohere with other beliefs and there's a stack of beliefs that reinforces other beliefs and it all works, then it's a non-foundational knowledge. It's not necessarily accurate, but it guides a life. So somebody like like Hitler would be a good example of that because you have somebody that believes something and then somebody around him starts to believe something about him and then the general public starts to believe something about that system and then even though what's being said is absurd or inaccurate all of a sudden you have an entire group operating on the principles of this non-foundational knowledge and then at that point it doesn't matter whether the premise is true or false all the what matters is the consequences of that of the and it cascades so look what you said about uh, climate change a moment ago mm. 
and there are lots of people in, uh, that I uh, care about in my life say the same kind of thing that you said, you know. Well, sure, climate change, ha ha, look how cold it is today. Well, so the belief of, about climate change is that global warming means everything is going to get warm. Everything isn't warm, therefore global warming doesn't exist. So we get into a, a, a false logic mm. or inaccurate logic, but observable circumstance in a local situated moment reinforces people's beliefs because you know people, there, are, there are all kinds of reasons people don't want to believe but i think my I, for christmas uh, my wife gave me this wonderful shirt science the wonderful thing about it is it, it's true even if you don't believe in it so <laughs> but is that foundational or non-foundational anyway uh so is there coherence and then there's the, the uh, another issue is and it's related to what you were talking about do we how certain do you have to be in order to know something? Right, because that's that's one of the questions that immediately popped up to me when you started talking about foundational knowledge was, okay, I have pain, you know, therefore it exists. Or I, I'm thinking, therefore I am. Those sorts of things I think seem intuitive to people. But I think most people, when you say 2 plus, plus 3 equals 5, that's where... A lot of people start to say, well, wait a minute. How do I know two plus three equals five? What are numbers? There's, there's a comedian that I like, uh, Mitch Hedberg. He told a joke one time talking about shampoo and conditioner. And he said, you know, two and one is a BS term. Two can't fit into one. That's why two was invented. You know, <laughs> And I mean, it, it's a joke, but it brings up that point. Yeah, two can't fit into one. That's why two were, you know, was invented. So the whole idea of numbers, like, okay, well, how do we know what numbers are? Um, what sort of knowledge do you have to have to establish it as knowledge, as, as opposed to saying, you know, this is something that I believe. I believe two plus three equals five, you know. Well, there's all, and, and, and that brings up another dichotomy, another tunus, uh duality, is uh, a priori knowledge which is knowledge gained through reason, not through experience. Mm. And one could argue that when you're thinking about numbers and you are gaining the knowledge of that, and through reason, through logic, one plus one equals two, and then we go to test it. But then there's a Latin terms, a posteriori knowledge, which is knowledge you're gaining through your sensory experience. Right. So I, I think I remember a, a big example. Of this was um, Plato versus Aristotle and um, th wanting to figure out how many teeth a horse has in its head. And so Aristotle, you know, like the Aristotelian point of view was in favor of just going and counting the horse's teeth, whereas Plato was, no, let's let's speculate about it and think about you know the shape of the horse's jaw what how many teeth could it fit and so that seems absurd like no just go count the horse's teeth but you know you also have to think about the flip side to that which the climate change argument we were just talking about is if you're going purely on the sensation and the concrete and what's in front of you then that can lead to false false yeah. premises the same way that speculating about how many teeth can fit in a horse's head can obviously lead you astray instead of just counting them 
think a lot of it is trying to figure out how to put the two together. Yeah, how do I? Yeah. Right. And, and again, coming back to that, the core concept of how do I take a general principle or how do I extract knowledge from a situ, a certain situation and apply it generally? And so I think it's a back and forth sort of um, yeah. process. There are two more terms for this. Maybe we're getting too academic, but I have to. But but we're we're in it now. So, all right. So they're analytic propositions. These are the a priori kinds of things. These are the things we arrive at through reason. Um, they're true by definition. Um, so I wrote scribble one on a card. All, all bachelors are married. You don't have to have a bachelor in front of you. Mm. Uh, all bachelors are married. We think about the term. Is that true? Or all bachelors are unmarried. Which is it? Right. Obviously, they're unmarried by definition. Yeah, right. So you have to reasonably say, well, I'm going to think about the definition of bachelor. I don't need to go find a bachelor. And That's exactly right. Right. Okay. So then we go to synthetic propositions. These are things we observe about the world. Paris is the capital of France. Or I am living in of Silver Springs or Warsaw, you know, mm. things which you, you can know by looking at the sign where you live, things that you, that you know because you moved there and you bought a piece. You know. So we don't want to get too, too granular about it, but, but there are two different things and they do influence each other. Maybe I know lots of people and people called them bachelors and that's how I learned the word when I was a little kid and everybody talked about them because they weren't married. Or I look in a dictionary. Or I just sit and reason. Well, if it's a bachelor, somebody who's single, then they must not be married. So, but we have, but the certainty level. Right. So this brings us, this segues really nice into the next category, which is, so we've built a, a pretty strong um, abstract system here saying, all right, well, there's foundational and unfoundational knowledge. And if we, can string together logically consistent things and we can accept them as being known. I live in, in Warsaw, Fran, you know, Paris is the capital of France, but now we're moving into conceptual validity and Socrates and his end is knowing anything possible. So Paris is the capital of France. Yeah, that goes without saying, but let's say we, where do we say Paris starts and ends or why does the word Paris, does the word Paris represent the same conceptual idea to me as it does to a Parisian or any number at any number of things you can become granular and you can look at it and say well this concept Paris probably isn't um, homogenous among all the people who need to think of it as a, a solid concept yeah, yeah well like no, you're you're using a really good example because it goes back to the corporate thing you talked about before. Where do the where do the biological entities within me end and I begin? Right. Or do we? We live in the Rochester Buffalo area. Okay, so Rochester refers to the Rochester region, defining a whole area by Rochester. But where does Rochester end? Well, you can pull out the zoning maps. You can pull out the the, the political maps, the 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 things that have been determined by surveyors back to whenever, and have the accurate definition of Rochester. But is that is that helpful when you're talking about the needs of the people 
in Rochester or the Rochester region, which would even include us. Right. And also how people define themselves. That, that's a problem we come up with in, in New York. As you move farther and farther downstate, um, you know, you have an upstate that's predominantly Republican and New York City is, pre- you know, predominantly Democratic. And so I think that when you get into that sort of, you know, south of Albany, probably your political views, I would not be surprised if your political views um, indicate whether you consider yourself a central New Yorker or a upstate New Yorker or a Western New Yorker, you know, like, or just a New Yorker, you know, because I think that those terms will come to, you know, those, those definitions, you want them to say something about you. But you want the category to be accurate, but you don't want to be in somebody else's category. So you're talking about right. categories. Before. I am not, a, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a what if somebody says, I am not a New Yorker following your thing because i'm a western new yorker and we don't believe the same things as those people down in the southern tier right they're southern tier new yorkers Mm -hmm. oh so there are many new yorks so we can't say that we live in one place if you if you pull it out to the granular then you finally see why we're having so much trouble that we're having because oh i'm not a new yorker new yorker i'm just because new york is an empirical concept encompasses the lines drawn by the federal and state government but it's not what's necessarily implied right. by yes. people's conversation the, the microorganisms that make up new york have decided for themselves that new york is not a singular concept it's something that applies separately to downstate as opposed to upstate or western or any of these so when all the small constituent elements of the being see we're being consistent with this whole metaphor <laughs> are are clashing are asserting no go this way no go that way no go the other way then the integrity of the organism uh, begins to diminish into a if not paralysis then a inconsistency right and i mean that that coming back to the the original metaphor um autophagy is a a process that is in the news right now because talking about intermittent fasting or timed feeding where like okay well if you can starve yourself some it tells your body that something bad is going on it clears out your your dead or useless cells and you become healthier because of it there's multiple kinds of of that where it's also something that happens if you're extremely sick or if you in in old age that sort of thing and the processes are are different and and it can have very different outcomes so yeah, sometimes the strife or the, you know, the arguments, the confusion and whatnot can lead to a healthier, more vibrant and vital being. And sometimes it can lead to, you know, death, you know, yeah, something, yeah. something very bad. You see, know? John Locke, we'll go back to John Locke. Because I was just thinking, I'm looking over your shoulder. And of course, this is a podcast. We don't see it. There's a, there's uh, on the curtain. I'm thinking of that circle. But if you look at the, the shape, is that really a circle? It's, it's probably an oval. It's an oval. Yeah. But if I said the circle, you'd know what I was talking right. about because in contrast to what? It, there's no there's no other shapes that are close to that. Around. Right, so it's in a window pane. So it's in a rectangular spot. Okay, so intuitive knowledge uh, takes two ideas and finds agreement or disagreement between them mm-hmm. to establish the knowledge of, of either. John Locke says, okay. Then we have demonstrative knowledge deducing the truth from a sequence of intuitions 
Now we're doing uh, Pythagorean theorem. Now we're doing right, math. Right. Okay. And then we have sensitive knowledge like this. Knowledge acquired through the senses. This is the least certain. Hmm. As we just said, my senses are telling me circle. Oh, nope, I'm sitting here thinking sphere, but it's not really a sphere because it doesn't have depth to me. So, but it is an oval. Right. <laughs> and as you start to, um, as science is advanced and you, are, you understand brain concepts and things, you begin to understand why that works. All of your sensory information is shunted through your amygdala and your amygdala can actually send signals back to your body before any other processing or computing happens in your brain and that's where reactions come from so if you see something flying at you out of the corner of your eye you know your amygdala might say oh my gosh that's a rock you need to duck you need to cover your head or whatnot when in reality it was your friend throwing a marshmallow at you or something you know when the proper response would have been to turn your head and catch it in your mouth instead you're ducking and covering your head so if you look at it from a purely philosophical standpoint, that reaction doesn't make sense. You received sensory information that a marshmallow was flying at your head and you duck it and covered. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't make sense. But when you apply the brain knowledge, okay, well, actually we know that there's a, a mechanism to protect you that, that sends you information back down saying that this is a worst case scenario even though we don't have all the information. We didn't allow all of the computing to happen. And that makes you realize that these guys who were thinking about it hundreds of years ago already knew that without knowing the specifics. Yes. All right, sensory knowledge is not going to be certain. We already, we already. In fact, we that. we may even Alvin Plantinga, Plantinga, um, in, again in the 20th century, was toying with the idea that we have, we may have evolved necessary false beliefs for our survival. Mm. Well, it just occurred to me in hearing you talk about that. Okay, so it's, yeah, it was a marshmallow and not a stone, but you survived. Right, right. And so, so what? You didn't eat the marshmallow. At least you didn't get hit by a stone or, or, you know, or misperceptions, which I think fall in this category. So I know that when I, I've told my students a number of times in the past, when I drive from Warsaw to Batavia uh, over a road called East Hill, when it's snowing, over and over again, uh, toward the top of, outside of a small town named Wyoming, there is a configuration of mailboxes and a phone pole, which, because of their angles, are suggestive of somebody about to walk across the road. Mm -hmm. And I slow down every time I see that because I think somebody, it's like a joke that just keeps happening. Fool me once, fool me twice, fool me again. Well, okay, so I slow down and I don't hit somebody and there's nobody to hit because it's an illusion, uh, an optical illusion, but my senses, which are inaccurate, are still warning me that there's a pattern that could be a problem. So the, the, the pattern knowledge. Right. So that's one level. The other level of evolving perhaps false beliefs is so that we just simply survive and reproduce. Right. People would argue, okay, we we invented all of these, all of the clusters of viewpoints on romance and everything, just so we'd say, okay, let's reproduce. We we evolved these entire structures which uh, enable us to 
manage to live with each other. <laughs> right, and yet if you look at human reproduction versus animal reproduction, you'll notice vastly different patterns. Like you said, with the with the um, romantic sort of implications and stuff. But all of those things have to do with most likely um, population control. You know, it wouldn't make sense to reproduce as animals do because you might very quickly end up with too many offspring that you can't take care of and then that's not beneficial to the um, increase of the species or you might end up in situations where now you have a mother by herself trying to take care of a certain number of children and a father that is you know nowhere to be seen and none of those things are beneficial and so some of these other things are brought about in order to reinforce patterns of behavior that are beneficial to the progress of the species Social evolutionists, Richard Dawkins, uh, and, and, and many, many others would take a, uh, Plantinga's work also and say, look, this is why we still have religion. Now, this is, again, I always have to say this when we're talking because I am I'm not slamming those of religious faith. I truly am not. But if you understand the idea that uh, if, <clears throat> if we think we know enough things that perhaps... Uh, Nietzsche said God is dead. He wasn't saying God is literally dead. He's just saying the concept is no longer necessary. All right, well, that's that's the idea. But if it stays, if despite all the potential difficulties that are associated with religion and all the wonderful things, but if you, if the difficulties outweigh the wonderful things and it stays, that means it has some kind of evolutionary use. And maybe the clusters of beliefs uh, uh, systems help people get through the day, how people have a better experience of life, and therefore life is richer, and therefore, yeah, we want life to continue. So, but it, that's a different kind of knowledge. Right. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to segue into our next place here. I don't know how successful I'll be, but so the next part of it is um, discrepancies. And we're going to talk about the blind men and the elephant parable. Because, and I think that does apply to the things we've been talking about. We talked about New York. You, it has these boundaries that are empirically say it's New York. The same way in an, we look at an elephant and the whole thing is talking about an elephant. We wouldn't look at a tusk and say it's an elephant. But we look at the whole thing and say that's an elephant. Well, the blind man parable says, well, if you have three blind men and one of them is holding the tail and one of them's holding a trunk and one of them's holding a tusk, and you ask them to describe the animal that they're in, that they're touching, they're all going to say extremely different things. The same way a New Yorker from Wyoming County is going to say New York is a different thing from a New Yorker in the Bronx. The same way um, somebody who is a pastor is going to say God or the purpose of religion is different from somebody who is a social evolutionist the same way somebody who is newly in love is going to say romance or reproduction is different from somebody who has been married 60 years or has never been married all of these people are experiencing a concept one concept in very different ways and are going to describe it very differently so discrepancies in knowledge that's kind of what we were talking about already um, is there anything more to add philosophically about that concept, having a, a core concept, something that is empirically defined, and then having um, 
people who are only privy to a certain experience or certain knowledge about that concept and how they integrate that into knowledge. Yes, I think there is. Um, two things. Well, so there's, there's a, an ism, a reliableism, uh, which says that in order to better achieve, uh, achieve is the right word, but to arrive at knowledge, you need to consider the processes that have led you to that. And so if you consider what has led to that so-called knowledge, cause and effect, whatever it is, what's the process that has led you to this, this intuition or this observation? And why did you build from that observation to the next thing? Um, a, a careful analysis like that can make you perhaps more accurate. And so the human instinct is to consider your own experiences more heavily than others, which makes sense because if we look at it philosophically, I can't even prove that you're an actual person. That's right. All I can prove is that I'm a person. So as a result, I'm going to take my knowledge and let's say I've had bad luck with, with relationships mm -hmm. and I can say, oh, well, love doesn't actually exist or romance doesn't actually exist. And this is something that I dealt with when I started getting married. I got married pretty young and a lot of people told me, Oh, you don't want to do that. Oh, it's, it's terrible. You're going to have such a terrible time. And it, I mean, it freaked me out a little bit because even though I had had good experiences myself, now you're looking at and you're, you're trying, you're amalgamating and integrating opinions and knowledge from others yes. into the overall concept of what love is. So, uh, you know, as, as a, as a child or as your first experience in love, you might have a certain viewpoint. But then as you go through different relationships or as people give you their input, now you're building the concept from parts borrowed from other people. And the overall view of that concept is going to determine, I think, your attitudes towards it and how you interact with it and a lot of different things. It will. And that's why the reliableism is important because there's nothing like birth and marriage to, to elicit a, a cascade of un. Necess not necessarily unwanted, but but more TMI kinds of stories. Okay, so somebody tells you, well, the marriage sucks, or somebody tells you that, oh, marriage is the most wonderful thing, or somebody tells you, oh, you're going to have trouble, as you said. Well, okay, if you're exercising a bit of reliableism, you say, well, what do I know about the person who's telling me this? Mm -hmm. What process has she or he been through that would lead them to that particular thing? But sometimes we don't do that. We say, oh, my God, it's going to be terrible. Oh, my gosh, it's going to be wonderful. Why? Because they told me so. <laughs> right. So if you see somebody you know, well, this guy's a self-centered jerk, and I've dealt with my whole life. He doesn't think about anybody but himself, and he has no filter when he talks about all this stuff. Well, it's probably not all that surprising if he tells you that love doesn't exist or that all women are terrible or any something like this. Whereas if you run across somebody who's extremely empathetic um, and personable and stuff, if they were to tell you the exact same thing, you might give it more weight. Right. Whereas if you've met 10 of these empathetic people and they all say that love is a good thing, then you might begin to add that to your concept of what it's love is. It's reinforcing things. So right. this, this is the process. So uh, Richard Rorty, one of my favorite contemporary philosophers, he, he says the truth is an ongoing conversation, that, that there's no... You know, I remember older people in my life saying, well, the fact of the matter is, 
And he says, no, there's no fact of the matter. That, that, that there's no outside human-generated knowledge conventions. And so, in other words, uh, uh, knowledge is not this uh, neutral mirror reflecting something that's independent of us. It, 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 that doesn't, for him, for a number of contemporary philosophers, nope. It's knowledge is arrived at by the people that we talk to, what we hear, what we take in, what we observe, but understanding that even what we observe, how you, how you observe, we were talking before the, the podcast, I was going to San Francisco and uh, what, 14 microclimates or something yeah, like yeah. that? All right. Now, somebody told you there were 14 microclimates based on their own experiences of having lived there. You're saying, nah. <laughs> right. Even though this guy, he's a tour guide, this is what he does day in and day out. He drives through all of these things. He's lived there for who knows how long. I'm still doubting his expertise because I've never experienced anything like that before. Precisely. And he also might be being a showman because he's trying to keep your right. attention. Yeah, and so alternative. <laughs> right. So, so, but then you experience them and you say, oh my gosh. Well, maybe you didn't count 14, but maybe you, you experienced a number of shifts that so you say, okay, so whatever the number, there are some interesting things going on here. All right, so Rorty says that there's no independent fact that just hangs out there and we're a neutral mirror reflecting it. That we, the very fact of our interaction with it uh, with whatever it is we're interacting with means that we begin to see the things that whatever for whatever stack of reasons we privilege, we, we want to believe, or we notice more. And so because we notice it more, that must be the most important element. Back to the elephant. If, <clears throat> if I'm feeling an elephant, even if I'm one blind man and running my hand over the element, elephant, I might find the tusk to be the most interesting part. And so when I describe it, I might describe this uh, mass, but it's a mass with a pointy front, which is a mighty point, and therefore, mm. so the elephant in its entirety is not being described. The sensitive information, sensibility, the sensitive information coming from our senses is being privileged. Right. Yeah, okay, and that, I think this is a good segue into applications of knowledge. So human traits, um, we've talked a little bit about how um, how we apply knowledge. But let's talk about how do intelligence and wisdom and language direct that process. And we've gotten into it a little bit. But so what separates um, knowledge from intelligence or knowledge from wisdom? And how, do, how does language sort of mediate or help us conceptualize that whole process? By the very fact that we we define things as two different things, it, it, it's it's uh, language is just fascinating and wonderful and and beyond our <laughs> beyond our ken sometimes. So the very fact that we say there's knowledge and then there's wisdom suggests that they're two different entities. Now we're back to the intuitive mm -hmm. defining against something else. But are we? But are we saying that just because somebody? thousands of years ago came up with a different thing because they decided it's a different thing. Let's right. us decide for ourselves. What right. Let's so what would you say wisdom is? This is the way I would sort of define it for myself off the cuff. I would say wisdom is the application of knowledge 
and intelligence is your ability to accrue knowledge. So you have one at the front end that's bringing things in, a collection of this item, and then how you use that item. So it's almost like a building process. You, ha you take a piece of wood, you carve it into something, and then you use that carving to accomplish a task. That's sort of the intelligence, knowledge, wisdom sort of we're done you said that so well there's so you know, that's no but that's you have just encapsulated the the, the modern contemporary uh, one of the the stronger views that that's what differentiates one's a capacity one's uh, which can be developed uh, one is observational one is synthesis putting putting it together deciding what is the most important element of all those things that have been gathered and processed. So are there, are there other views of it, or is that pretty well the accepted um, paradigm? Of, of wisdom versus knowledge? Well, yeah, there's the experiential. I think you mentioned that before. There's the, the I think, not entirely false notion, but certainly not entirely true that accrued experience can lead to wisdom if all of the experience accrued is continuing to be reflecting reflect re reflectivity some some philosophers some you know people ordinary people would say you don't have wisdom unless you reflect wisdom is a reflect wisdom emerges from looking back at all this stuff mm. so we we have these as my father <laughs> love him for it he calls cell phones your brain he says okay guys pull out your brain and let's look at the okay so so we can look at our brain or we can look at our note cards to remind us of things. But if we don't have anything but our note cards or our cell phone, our, our brain, so to speak, it's just a bunch of statements, a bunch of propositions. And that's totally granular and, and uh, Lego-like and disconnected. So knowledge involves perhaps beginning to connect and wisdom says, here's the bigger picture. So can you, can somebody have um, some of these things or to what extent can somebody have one of these concepts without having the others? Can somebody be intelligent, but not knowledgeable or wise? Can they be knowledgeable without being intelligent or wise? Can they be wise without being intelligent or knowledgeable? Can you, can you separate out these things? What, to, what extent can you do that to? Well, let's, let's put it to the test. Let's see if we can think of a situation where someone might be uh, intelligent without being knowledgeable. Okay. Let's, and, and let's add a little uh, mix into it. Somebody who doesn't have formal education. Okay. So to me, my creative side is imagining like um, Leonardo DiCaprio from the Titanic. Like here you got this guy and like at every turn he's doing something smart, something slick. He's always getting somewhere. But at the same time, he obviously doesn't have um, a collection of information that he can draw off of to make wise decisions that have built up um, a, a, a lifestyle. He's intuitively intelligent, or he might be observationally intelligent. Maybe a, maybe a better natural example would be a shark. If you look at a shark, a shark has a very small brain, but an, an enormous CNS, central nervous system. So as a result, Sharks are very intuitive, and as a result, they're very nimble, very agile, and they're able to accomplish something very quickly. But there's no collection of knowledge or reflection on what's happening. It's more 
they know if something does this, they're going to do this to react very quickly and accomplish a, a task. That would probably be considered um, a form of intelligence, but not a form of wisdom, knowledge or wisdom. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And and so and, and this is what takes us into that that muddy pit behind the barn <laughs> of where people like to privilege things because they don't necessarily have the other thing rather than looking at the integration. So that people will denigrate book learning. I, I've, I've, my family, my person, I myself, I didn't go to school and I'm very smart or I've had students who will often say, I've got a grandfather who's just the most intelligent person and he never cracked open a book. And, 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 and he says that, that you don't need to go to school because you can be smart without it. Okay. What they're not thinking about is, of course, Mm-hmm. Of course, the grandfather has an intelligence, and he probably has an accrued experiential uh, uh, intelligence that guides him wonderfully in, in whatever work and so on he's done. And he may, and he probably has developed an experiential wisdom from that body of of knowledge for where he lives and what he does. But that doesn't mean that learning from books is bad and that doesn't mean that somehow you're elitist if you learn from books what what one would hope is obvious that you would put the two things together and then become even more intelligent and and more complete in your in your gathering so that you it might lead you to some wisdom that otherwise wouldn't occur because you didn't have as you said the set of things to draw from yeah, and I think that there's, um, you know, sort of archetypes that you can build out of academics and blue-collar people, but that doesn't mean it's a hard and fast rule. The guy who invented the periodic table was so slow that when he went to movies, he had to bring somebody along to explain to him the plot of the movie because he he couldn't follow quick enough to know what was going on. But given a couple decades, this guy could construct this thing, and I identify more with that. There's a lot of people who are more you know, I may have a, a higher knowledge base or more wisdom, but that fast thinking, um, sort of that intelligence, I don't really have it. So like that in the moment arguing, there's sometimes where I can get backed into a corner and be like, uh, yes. and then five or 10 minutes later, I'll have a perfectly constructed argument that's bulletproof, but the moments pass, you know, they're gone. Right. You know? So I think, so that's a little bit of the, the that's intelligence. Why we need, that's why we need the, the variety. Right. And so that that heads into the knowledge base. Can you have knowledge without without the other two? And I think that that one might be a little bit simpler to construct because we just we just talked about it a little bit. Yeah, um, you can have knowledge. Yeah, it's right there. Stack of stack of note cards. Uh, uh, Alexa. Right. We'll lead it right. Lead you right to it. Right there. You go. It doesn't. You don't need intelligence because you're not you're not using a bunch of inductive or deductive reasoning to get there you might just be presented with information and you might be able to accept that as knowledge through the empirical things around that imply it's it's has a um a truth to it and if you don't have we're not talking all or nothing so if i say you don't have the intelligence thing you don't have intelligence at all that's silly no but so you have a Let's say you have your cell phone, you have Google, or not an endorsement of a product, by the way. So if you don't know or haven't learned or how to do a guided search, 
and you're just depending upon some Alexa or whatever it is, or you just you you do a search and the first five things that show up, you say, well, there there's the answer, and you go to it, or and you and you go to that answer and you like it, and you don't look at the authority of where the source what the source of information is, you like it, and therefore it must be so, even if it's from a, a wildly inaccurate and unauthoritative place. Well, you, you can gain knowledge, but that knowledge may not be accurate. Right. And I think the last one is the one that you'd sort of, you know, balk at a little bit. Can you have wisdom without knowledge or intelligence? And I think the initial assumption is probably not because wisdom is taking knowledge and making something out of it. But to me, it's sort of an example I would think of is if you had somebody who, let's say you find somebody from a third world country and they have never had any kind of formal education, you know, and they Maybe they have a malnutrition or a, a life situation that has caused them to have a, a lack of intelligence. They might still make good decisions based off the little knowledge or intelligence they have. They might still be empathetic people. They might still be, um, you know, they might be able to make good decisions based off of the, 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 the amount that they have. So I think that basically what this whole thing is kind of established is that there are three different concepts for a reason. And even though they do interrelate, you can't have one without the other. Um, there's enough of a difference that warrants different concepts. So let's look at the flip side of it a little bit, uh, which is, you know, ethics of, of knowledge and what are the implications of uh, naivety or ignorance or lying? You know, what, how does that, what does philosophy said about some of those negative aspects of knowledge? <sighs> Utilitarian knowledge or utilitarianism, <clears throat> consequentialism is part of that. And we've talked about that before. Would uh, the needs of many outweigh the needs of the few, or or the greatest good, whatever we're defining as good, um, or the greatest pleasure, however we're defining as pleasure, probably not the lowest end of the Maslow chart. Um, if you make a decision based on those parameters, you're making a decision that's probably a good one, and therefore you're working on the knowledge that you have to affect that decision. But if you purposely make a decision that is going to lead to harm, if, if you purposely want to harm a group of people and so you can write them off as well they're going to be hurt but the greater number of people aren't then utilitarians would say no you're not being ethical in the least because you've consciously contemplated uh, a harm to someone and and wish it right so that brings yeah lying is the big one because that brings up a huge issue whether you're looking at it through a religious lens or a societal lens, you know, regardless of uh, a philosophical lens. And some people will say, you know, yeah, okay, well, if you're going to, if one person's going to get hurt, but many are going to get benefited, then it's good. Whereas other people are going to say, no, lying is always bad. Or if you do it intentionally, it's always bad. Think, think presidential fact-checking. Now, it's done all the time. It's not just with the current president, but uh, newspapers will do this. Well, fact-checking is interesting because it means going back, looking at a statement a president has made, and then making a determination 
of some kind, whether it was an out-and-out lie, it was uh, something that's been misunderstood and misrepresented to a small or a large degree, or that it was accurate. Well, you know, most journalists work really hard not to use the word lie in fact-checking. Um, they will say this was far from the knowledge that we have. Here's the, uh, the empirically measurable fact. So if somebody says uh, 2,000 people are doing something, and it really there were 80, then there's a, div uh, a disconnect between those two kinds of things. Right, and that's, that's important because that brings in those other concepts. Now we're moving from lying to ignorance and naivety and i think that in everyday life like you're saying people wouldn't draw that precise of a distinction people would just say oh he's lying or whatever but i think that the reason they distinguish on a presidential level is because a president's actual beliefs influence world policy so if he's lying about something versus being ignorant about something or being naive about something all three of those things have different um possible outcomes for how he influences policy if he's flat out lying about something he might influence a policy about what he actually believes if he's ignorant about something he might he still might influence the policy but right. why he's influencing the policy that way might not be has different motivations and and this is true this is why i think we, we need to bring it down to our regular relationships when people leap oh to let's think, think of someone you know that you work with or the cluster of people you interact with frequently and we we all have characters in our lives and sometimes we make some of them villains and sometimes we make some of them allies and all of that kind of stuff in, in the narratives that we weave but if we if and i say this as a very flawed person we all don't always do this and we don't do it nearly as much as we should if we looked at the statements that are made and didn't just leap you're lying. Well, or how, well, how would it be different in the relationship if you say you're inaccurate? Mm, right. Uh, people don't like to be inaccurate, but it still sounds better than lying. Mm. Or uh, there's some stuff you don't know that really might cause you to think differently. Right. And the biggest one that I think of right off the bat, because I've, I've struggled with it for a while, is road rage. Uh, no, not rage. I don't. I don't. No, no. I don't road rage, but like attitudes, yeah, attitudes. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so, this is probably a good example for it. You know, let's say I'm driving on the road on the highway, and there's a a big lifted truck, right? Yeah. So if he drives past me fast and cuts me off, I might get extremely angry because I've woven this narrative: the people that drive this truck and people that drive this way and do this thing are villains, and that's going to be my my knowledge of it now if we transport ourselves to the guy inside the truck maybe he is really is a malicious character he sees me driving in my car and thinks oh this guy's a loser cuts me off that's one possible scenario maybe the guy's wife is in this seat having a baby and he's rushing to get to the hospital and that would be a different thing or maybe the guy has a problem with um, spatial relationships and thinks that he's given me enough space and pulls in and cut me off completely on accident though all three of those are different scenarios all three of them rely on different kinds of knowledge and really it brings up that sort of separation between um, you know ignorance in making a decision 
or being naive about how a process works or intentional malicious behavior. But regardless, it's not really my job as the person driving the other car to make that decision. You know, like, but that what I decide to believe about it can influence my attitudes. In one of those situations, I'm probably going to be screaming inside my car with my raised blood pressure. Right. Or in another one, I might be thinking, I hope he gets wherever he's going safe. Or in the other one, I might be thinking, man, this guy kind of needs to learn how to drive. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. all, it, yeah. it only affects me, my attitudes, my thought about how I construct knowledge about how this other driver is behaving. And this is what, you know, this is what Buddhism as one example of many things is what yoga practice is about is you just hit it whatever that interaction was with you and yourself in that car thinking about this it affected your physicality it affected your presence of mind it affected your blood pressure it affects the way the rest another moment in the day has gone uh, it might cause you to think of yourself as well I'm a better driver than you know right, all these yeah. kind of things rather than just saying Okay, I've adjusted for the con conditions, and now <laughs> we go on. Yeah, and, and all of this reflects uh, back on the entire conversation we've had from the beginning. You know, that's, that's non-foundational knowledge. I'm stringing together a, 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 a number of um, arguments to try to come to a conclusion. Oh, does this guy drive a lifted truck? Oh, is he driving a certain speed? Is he doing a certain thing? Does he have certain bumper stickers? Can I see in there? Is he wearing a hat? You know, all of the all of these things. And then you're constructing you're really constructing beliefs, not knowledge. But those beliefs added to previous experiences are constructing the knowledge base that you're drawing off of to make That's decisions. That's what Plato said in, in, in one of his dialogues, the Zetetus. He said that about talks about justified true belief. Which means that we we look back again at the experiences that we have. We have, uh, we look uh, we think uh, logically or reasonably through what we construct with those experiences. Why have we arrived at the opinion we've arrived at? So we're we're still talking about that in the twenty first century, using different names for it. But it came back from from as far back as Plato. Uh, do we need to do those things? Why? So the, then the the, the ontological question the, the being part is uh, why do we need to assert that we are better drivers or why do we need to weave this narrative out of what are we drawing it we we can see an 18 wheeler truck uh, we don't even necessarily see the driver's face what difference would it make if we saw their face at a distance we wouldn't know anything if we were sitting with them in a restaurant we might see whether they're tired whether they've taken too many, uh, maybe we can take a guess, they've taken too many uppers because they're trying to drive too far. But then we know the companies are trying to push drivers to go further beyond the, than, than they should. But we're going to blame the driver because it's just, he's a jerk. And I want to say he's a jerk because it just felt better. I, uh, my blood pressure has gone down after I've said it, right? Uh, so, yeah, the, just, the justification of a belief means doesn't mean we still arrived at knowledge. Mm. It means we've arrived at a better understanding of what we think is knowledge right yeah that i think that's a good place to to wrap that up i think we we really covered that whole thing so the question i was going to ask was can knowledge save the human species and i think that's something that a lot of people think about sort of regardless of you know your situation whether you're looking at it from a, a climate change point of view or a political point of view 
you know, and, and those things will influence different. You might think that building a wall on the southern border is the way to protect our our tribe, our our nation. You might think that um you know ridding CO2 emissions is a way to, to save it. Whatever whatever the case may be, do you think that knowing more can save the species as a whole? And so the first the first sort of thing that I came up with is the exponential curve of knowledge acquisition makes it likely we'll find answers to problems facing us. So if you're looking at whether you know, climate change issues, we're coming up with new technologies all the time. Or you look at um, political issues, sometimes it takes a, an extremely long period of time. But if you have a policy implemented, you're going to see the fruits of it. And, you know, I think a shutdown is kind of a good case. So you have these two, when, this, when the government shutdown starts, you have two sides that are completely um, opposed to one, each, one another. There's no middle ground. And you think, well, this is never going to end then. But as time goes on, one or both sides are going to accrue knowledge about the situation as it's unfolding and are going, and eventually one or both of them are going to come to a conclusion about the inability of this to continue and a, a decision will be made about how it's going to end whether it's a compromise or a complete um, a temporary or a, yeah, yeah permanent okay. essentially <laughs> knowledge you know even if it looks like both positions are in one place that's not going to move it's not going to be the case forever there's going to be knowledge happening there's going to be things happening so the acquisition of knowledge is likely to to answer problems that we face it humans humans are very good at problem solving we are but there is that factor of time in the space-time continuum mm -hmm. so if knowledge is disseminated if knowledge is embraced if if empirical facts are cross-reference checked and over and over again proved to be so and you still decide not to act on those things, then you might not save the, the species, or you might not save as many of the species as you could because there is a diminishing window, whether you're talking about climate change or economics. I mean, ultimately you talk about the shutdown and what seems to be the case is that a, a whole lot of people realized that they didn't want planes falling out of the sky because Traffic controllers were not going to be there, and radar is not being tended to, and technology is already beginning to fall apart after a month. Right. You see, the, 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 the sheer fragility of our technologies becomes readily apparent when you shut down just a little bit of this thing you've created, and you can pretend that it doesn't, it doesn't matter a bit, but hard knowledge right, right. <laughs> actually intrudes and so then you they but that was a time thing in the case of the shutdown yeah and that that goes into the next point which is resource scarcity scarcity will make survival difficult and again you can apply this to climate change or political um situations Water. yeah it doesn't it doesn't matter what the situation is resources are scarce and so as a result um 
As you acquire knowledge, you might find more efficient ways to use resources, or you might realize that resources that you were using previously and are now unavailable need to be found. But scarcity is a driving factor in survival. You know, it is what it boils down to. If you're looking to survive, you need to be able to utilize resources that are important for that survival. And you know, air traffic controllers are are a resource. They are a resource. And if, and and if we need, if we're going to continue to grow, if we're going to continue to expand then we need to get off the planet. Stephen Hawking was talking about that. Not all of us. We don't like leave the, the building behind. Right. But there comes a point where the lobsters need to crawl out of the pot before they die. Right. And, <laughs> and that's, that's my last point, which is even, even as a spacefaring species, our time would eventually run out. If, you know, because of dark energy kind of spreading everything around and, you know, things getting farther away and the, the loosening grip of gravity to draw things together and have these covalent bonds, everything's going to cool down and become a black hole or a white dwarf and is going to become a place un, inhospitable to life. We are finite. Right. So we can jump from planet to planet. Well, we don't know if we can. That's it's really the clock between resource scarcity and acquisition of knowledge. Can we acquire knowledge enough fast enough to make a jump before resources run out? Assuming a will to do to so do, as do well, so. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Because you can gather all the facts that you want, but but yeah, if we, if we stayed on the planet, you is what you just said. We we know this about stellar evolution, about the lifetime of a star. We've observed enough of them. If we stay on this planet in four billion years, more or less, the planet won't exist. It will be a cinder because by then the star will have expanded as it changes, uh, as it diminishes. Right. Which is interesting. Expansion and diminishment. Yeah, you you expand into a red dwarf, but really the star is diminishing. Right. So, so yeah, so the Earth becomes a, a piece of charcoal or a marshmallow flying at your head. <laughs> so we there's an end point, but as usual, lots of people don't want to consider the end point. It's not a lot of right. fun, but yeah, and it, and it doesn't matter if it's on an individual term or on a species term. We know it, like we. We know that we'll, we'll die as individuals, and we also know that we're going to die as a species. So how does that knowledge affect how we live as people, but also how does that knowledge affect how we decide to move forward and contribute to society? You know? Man, that sounds like another podcast. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. So, but... I think that we touched on a lot of important stuff about knowledge. I think it's something that's going to pop up a lot in future podcasts as well. It's always going to be something that we come back to. So thank you for listening to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. The recording and production are provided by me, Joel Bouchard, and the song featured in the show is Questions off of my album Jaguars, which you can find on Spotify or anywhere MP3s are sold. Until next time, keep pondering.